All right, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 begins our text today. If you're using the, the black Bibles that are provided, that can be found on page 821. Matthew 15, verse 21. Last week, I got mixed up with my geography when I said that Jesus, at the end of chapter 14, went into a Gentile re- region healing people. Uh, there at the end of 14, I realized he's actually still within Israel's borders there. But now today, <laughs> in, in 1521, where we begin, he is going to go into a Gentile region. So I want to make sure and clear that up because... That, that's really going to be the theme of what we see throughout the rest of chapter 15 is Jesus ministering to the Gentiles. In fact, that's really the main thrust of our time today. I think that's the thrust of what the Word of God is showing us here is that Jesus has come to save Gentiles as well as Jews. So let's read this passage together. We want to consider verses 21 through 39 today of Matthew 15. So I'd ask the congregation once again to stand, please, for the reading of God's word. Please follow along as I read now in Matthew 15, 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadon. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. Well, the title of the sermon today is Savior for All Nations. Our text shows Jesus ministering to Gentiles 
which foreshadows the fact that the risen Christ would commission his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples from every nation. You can see in your Bibles that our text is divided into three paragraphs there. And so I will consider the text under those three corresponding headings. We'll spend most of our time on the first heading. I always like to tell you that so you don't uh, get nervous on me. Right? So here's heading number one. In verses 21 through 28, we see Gentile faith. Gentile faith. Look with me at verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus withdraws from Galilee where he's been ministering and where he's just had that confrontation. Remember last week with the scribes and the Pharisees who came up from Jerusalem? Jesus withdraws from there, heads west and north into Gentile territory of Tyre and Sidon. Which if you're trying to get a handle of where that is, that's modern day Lebanon and Syria. Okay? So Jesus goes into a Gentile region, but this wasn't just any Gentile region. Tyre and Sidon had a long history of being Israel's direct enemies. If you remember back in this, with the story of Elijah, and remember a wicked woman named Jezebel, <laughs> who had led most of the northern kingdom astray, she was from Tyre. And she, again, led the people astray with her pagan... Um, prophets and practices and and so we see that throughout the old testament just enemies from tyre and sidon and then in the intertestamental period and during the second century bc the the maccabean revolt uh the, the people from from tyre fought against the jews and so many of you have heard of josephus the jewish historian uh, who wrote a, he was a contemporary to jesus or just right after jesus he said this about the inhabitants of Tyre, they are, quote, notoriously our bitterest enemies. So that's how the Jews felt about the people from this area. Jews hated Gentiles and considered them unclean. So imagine what the disciples are thinking, right, as, as we go into this area. Like, okay, Jesus, it's great that we kind of got away from the scribes and the Pharisees, and I, I understand wanting to rest now and kind of maybe re- recuperate, but what are we doing here, <laughs> you know? I think they were probably wanting to keep kind of a low profile, probably were just wanting to get out of here as quick as possible, and I I think that's going to play into how we even see them react in this story. But look at what happens in verse 22. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So before we get to her need... Notice how she approached Jesus. Mark's account of this, he's kind of kind. He just simply um, calls her a Greek. But Matthew tells us exactly who it is. He says she is, it was a Canaanite. And that's significant. That's the only time the word Canaanite is used in the New Testament. Now, we hear it all the time in the Old Testament, right? But um, the Canaanites were the ancient enemies of Israel. Remember when... When Joshua is getting ready to lead the the people into the promised land, they were told to destroy the Canaanites lest lest their um, idolatry lead the Israelites astray, right? So it's like Matthew, again, he's writing to Jews, right? He's he's highlighting the fact that this was a Canaanite. This was a, a woman from the ancestry of our ancient enemies. And now this woman has come up to Jesus, a Jew, 
and asking for help. She says her daughter's severely oppressed by a demon, and so we can we don't get any more detail about that, but from the other gospel accounts, we can only imagine what was what was happening to her daughter, right? The kind of uh, torture and torment that was, was, was happening to her from this demon. So understandably, this, one, this mo- mother, right, is desperate like any of us would be. She's desperate to help her poor daughter. And notice this Canaanite woman, this is what's astounding. This Canaanite woman knows that Jesus is not just any Jew. Did you notice how she addressed him? She says, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. So no doubt she's heard the reports about Jesus, even even in her region. She knows that Jesus has authority over evil spirits. and, And get this, she believes that Jesus is Israel's promised king. Because she uses his messianic title, son of David. Right? Son of David, remember the covenant God made to David, that one of your descendants... Would, would reign forever. And so son of David was a, was a title for the Messiah, the promised king who would come and deliver his people. And, and amazingly, this Gentile woman, this Canaanite, is using that title for Jesus. <laughs> son of David, have mercy on me. What a contrast from last week, right? Think about the scribes and the Pharisees, the the experts in the Old Testament law, the ones who were studying the the word, who were waiting for the promised Messiah, yet they had Jesus right in front of them, and they wouldn't believe in him, right? They were rejecting him as the Messiah. But yet here's this Gentile woman, and again, I don't know how much scripture she knew, but she knew enough, right? She knew enough, and she had heard about Jesus And she knew that she had a desperate need. And she believed that Jesus is the one, the only one, who could meet that need. And so she cries out to him desperately. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And so the picture I want you to have in your mind's eyes of this woman who is desperate, this woman who's who's in anguish, this woman who's shamelessly calling out to to Jesus for mercy, because um, the text there says she was crying out. That means the tense of the verb we know means that it wasn't just one-time request, right? She was just continually crying out after Jesus and his disciples. You can imagine they're just kind of walking through, right? And she's crying out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter, please have mercy on me. She's just crying out again and again. She's making a public spectacle of herself begging Jesus to have mercy on her and to heal her daughter. But look at verse 23. He, being Jesus, did not answer her a word. (laughs) That's kind of shocking, isn't it? Jesus ignores her. She's crying out in anguish and he just ignores her. Here she is, continually crying out. But yet Jesus is just not even responding. And so in verse 23, it says, his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. So even the disciples are begging Jesus to heal this woman's daughter. Right? When we first read that, we might think, oh, they just want want Jesus to kind of throw her out, right? But no, I think they were actually, I mean, the disciples could have done that. 
But if you look at what, how Jesus is going to respond to them in the very next verse, I think the disciples were even saying, Jesus, just, just send her away. Grant her request. She's crying out after us. And I don't know if they were having compassion on her, or if they were just were embarrassed by her, or they were annoyed by her, but they're just like, just, just answer her request. She just keeps on crying out. Let's just move on with our day. Verse 24, he, Jesus, answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So do you see the dialogue happening here? Jesus is answering the disciples, but no doubt he's answering in a way that she hears his answer too. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus is saying, I'm the Jewish Messiah. I was sent to rescue the lost sheep of Israel. And so again, this is, as we read this, we're like, man, this is, this is not how we usually picture Jesus, is it? This is not politically correct. I mean, Jesus is letting this woman know, you're not in the right people group. I did not come to help you. You're outside of the covenant people. You have no claims on the Messiah. That's essentially what he was saying to her. Verse 25. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. So, I mean, this woman is, is relentless. She's undeterred. Now she's, it's like she's circled around in front of him and falling down before him and just continuing to cry out, saying, Lord, help me. This woman's persistent. She's desperate. Continues to cry out. So Jesus answers her in verse 26. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus is really making the same point that he did in verse 24 about who he's come for, but now he's using an illustration. Children mean the Jews, right? And dogs obviously refers to the woman's daughter, to her, to Gentiles in general, right? Again, Jesus is saying the ministry of the Messiah is for the Jews, not Gentiles. But now, so he's saying the same thing, but he's, now he's kind of putting more of a sting on it, isn't he? calling her and her daughter dogs. And that's what the Jews, that's how they referred to the Gentiles, as dogs. And that wasn't an endearing term, right? I know we love our dogs nowadays, but, but to them, that, they were just saying, you guys, are, you guys are unclean, you guys are scavengers. You know, dogs just would ravage and, and scavenge. and That's not even a word, is it? They were scavengers. They would just eat, eat whatever, right? Roam in the streets, And that's the Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs because they considered them unclean. They were godless. They were pagan idolaters. They were outside the covenant people of God. Now, um, it should be noted that Jesus here uses a Greek word for dogs that describes little dogs. And so some commentators think, oh, see that he's being nicer than it maybe sounds, but I'm not so sure. I don't really think that softens it much because a little dog was still unclean, right? I mean, yeah, now he's, he's just com- saying, um, he's comparing her and, and her need to being little dogs that are just kind of roaming around, always underfoot, there in the house, still scavenging, still kind of a nuisance. They, you know, I know here in the West, we... we uh, Spend, we spoil and spend lots of money on our dogs and, and as pets and things, but I don't think this was really softening it. 
that much. He's saying to her in strong terms, you have no claim here. You have no claim to appeal to the Jewish Messiah for healing. Now, I don't know about any of you, but you may be kind of uncomfortable so far with the way this has been going, right? You're thinking, man, Jesus, you sound kind of harsh here, right? And so we have to take what we know about the Bible and what we know about Jesus as a whole. The Bible is clear. Jesus is kind. He is loving. He is compassionate. We're going to see that again in our passage later on. He's not anti-Gentile, nor is he anti-woman. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, I think Jesus is challenging her faith. I think he's challenging this woman to help develop and draw out her faith. Right? She has faith. Again, maybe it's probably in its infancy stage. And I think Jesus, as he often does, is seeking to strengthen that, draw that out more. Here's how one commentator put it, R.T. France. He said, a good teacher may sometimes aim to draw out a student's insight by a deliberate challenge, which does not necessarily represent the teacher's own view. In other words, I don't, I don't want us to, to think that Jesus had to be convinced to show compassion to this Gentile woman. Rather, he's resisting her request initially to grow and draw out her faith as well as to teach the disciples something about his ministry, right? Something about his mission. So he said to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now look at her response, right? I mean, this is like about the third time Jesus has kind of just, you know, stiff-armed her, so to speak. But look at how she responds in verse 27. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. So the woman embraces Jesus' portrayal of Jews as children and Gentiles as dogs. She embraces that metaphor and she just runs with it. She says, okay, that's fine. Yes, I'm a dog, right? But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Yes, let the children be fed. But allow us, the dogs, to enjoy the crumbs. I'm not asking to take the children's bread, Jesus. I just want the crumbs. Even dogs get that, right? She recognized and accepted the priority given to the Jews. That Jesus had come first to the Jews. To bring the kingdom of God to Israel first. We see that in scripture and we'll talk more about that. So she recognized that, but she also believed that the grace and mercy of God in Jesus was great enough, was was large enough and great enough to include her and her people. So she's like, the dogs, even dogs get the crumbs, right? When dogs eat the crumbs, they're not robbing the children of their food. They're simply eating out of the surplus of what was given to the children. And in those crumbs, in those crumbs of Jesus' ministry, in those crumbs of Jesus' grace and, and power and blessing and deliverance, in those crumbs, she saw enough for her and her need. 
She trusts that Jesus has brought salvation to Israel and that that salvation, that saving work that Jesus was doing was abundant enough to spill over and include people like her. So what do you think of that response? Well, what did, what did Jesus think of it? Look at verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. She responded well, didn't she? Jesus is impressed. He exclaims, woman, how great is your faith. She recognized her desperate need. She knew she didn't deserve to be helped, but she believed that Jesus was gracious and loving and mighty to save. And so she threw herself on his mercy and Jesus commends her bold faith and he grants her request and instantly heals her daughter. So this Gentile woman has demonstrated great faith in Jesus. In fact... And this is what we're going to see um, throughout this this section. She seems to understand the mission of Jesus, the mission of the Messiah. She seems to understand it even better than the disciples and the rest of the Jews do. She understands, and again, I don't know to what capacity, but she understands that Jesus is the promised son of Abraham who will be a blessing to all nations. And that's how the Bible portrays the coming of the Messiah, right? Way back in Genesis 12 and then 15 and 17, God makes that covenant with Abraham that through you all nations will be blessed. Through one of your descendants, salvation will come to people from all nations. And then that's the, that's the thread, that's the promise that just continues to uh, be um, talked about and developed throughout the Old Testament. And so you have the prophets talking about the promised Messiah as the servant of the Lord. And yes, he was coming and the Jews were looking forward to him. He was going to come and and, and be that son of David, that promised king of Israel. Yes, but even in the Old Testament, there were, were, um, what do you want to say, hints, little touches of the fact that the Messiah would bring salvation to all people. Let me just share a few of them for you. Most, a lot of these, I think, are in those verses that says other passages to consider. In Isaiah, the servant of the Lord, we've talked about that before, I think even in our study through Matthew. The servant of the Lord became, it was understood now to be the Messiah, right? The, Jesus himself, when he gets up in the synagogue in, in his hometown of Nazareth, he reads one of the passages of the servant of the Lord, right? And says, today it's been fulfilled in your hearing. So the servant of the Lord, talk is, uh, those passages in Isaiah that are called those servant passages, they talk about how the Messiah is going to come and bring, bring healing, bring deliverance. And in those very passages, it talks about how the Messiah, how that healing, that power, that deliverance will extend to the nations. Isaiah 42.6 and Isaiah 49.6 both say that Messiah will be a light for the nations. Isaiah 66 talks about how the Messiah will gather all nations and tongues to come and worship him at his holy mountain. 
Micah 4 says many nations will come. Zephaniah talks about all the nations will call upon the Lord. Zechariah 9 talks about how he will proclaim peace to the nations. Right? The very things that we celebrate and sing about at Christmas time, right? About how the Messiah has come. It's joy for the whole world. Because it means peace is being extended. Peace is being offered. Salvation is is happening for people from all nations. So, this woman seemed to understand that in some form. Her faith was great that she knew that Jesus is gracious enough to save even Gentiles. And that's the lesson the disciples needed to learn. And so they're going to continue to learn that lesson now as we go through to the next passage here. So in 21 through 28, we saw Gentile faith. Now secondly, in 29 through 31, here's the heading I put for that. Kingdom blessings for the Gentiles. Kingdom blessings for the Gentiles. Again, I'll just read 29 through 31 again. Jesus went up from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowds wondered when they saw the mute speaking and and crippled healthy, and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now Matthew's kind of vague about where are we at here. It just says Jesus goes up on a mountain. But scholars agree that Jesus is still there in that Gentile region. And what tells us that most most notably is look at how they're praising God for what they see. They glorified the God of Israel. That's a Gentile description for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's like their loved ones are being healed. They're seeing Jesus do these miracles. They know that that he's Jewish, they know that he's the, the Jewish Messiah, that he's, and they're, they're praising God of, the God of Israel. Thank you for sending him. Even we are benefiting from him. So these are, Jesus is in a Gentile area here. These are healings that he's doing for the Gentiles. But as we've seen throughout Matthew, these healings are not just acts of mercy and power, although they are that, but they're also even more importantly, showing that the kingdom of God has come, that Jesus is that promised king who's bringing in the promised kingdom of God. Hold your place there in, in, um, in Matthew 15. Before, before we turn back, look at verse 30. Notice how it describes what, who the sicknesses that Jesus healed, and keep this in your, in your mind. The lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, it says. Okay? So you got that? Now turn back to Isaiah 35. So we're back in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 35, page 595 in the Black Bibles. The context here in in Isaiah, right, is there's been a series of chapters leading up to verse 35 where where God is declaring judgment on the nations. Specifically, he's declaring judgment on Edom, on Egypt, on Tyre, on Israel and Jerusalem. Because they've all been unfaithful, right? His own people have been unfaithful, and certainly the Gentile nations have not thanked and, and honored and sought God. 
And so this Isaiah 35 comes on the heels of, of all this judgment being proclaimed on the nations. But here in 35, the theme shifts from judgment to a time of joy because God comes to earth to save and deliver his people. In other words, this is one of those passages that was prophesying about the coming kingdom of God. Okay? When God himself would come down and bring salvation to his people. Now look at verse Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. <laughs> These are the signs that the kingdom of God has arrived, right? Eyes of the blind open, ears of the deaf unstopped, lame leaping, mute singing. Okay? So God is saying here in Isaiah, when you see those things happening, you know the kingdom of God has come. Well, those are the exact things that, that was, was happening there in Matthew 15, right? Now, don't leave Isaiah 35 just yet. Because in this context of Isaiah 35, not only is it talking about, yes, the kingdom of God is going to come. And of course, you know, the Jews are thinking, yes, that's what we've been waiting for. But even here in this context... We, we see these glimmers of this is going to be joy and salvation for people from all nations. Look at verse 2 of Isaiah 35. It, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Did you catch that? Of Lebanon. They're saying even the places like Lebanon are going to see this salvation. They're going to see evidences of God's glory. And where we're at in Matthew 15, remember, Tyre and Sidon, that's exactly where we're at. So in other words, what's happening in Matthew 15 is fulfilling Isaiah 35. And what Isaiah 35 is, is talking about the kingdom of God coming. And so what Matthew is showing his Jewish readers, the kingdom of God has come and the blessings have come even to the Gentiles. Even to the Gentiles. Okay? And so really that's, that's what we're going to see now even with this next passage, this, the feeding of the 4,000, is it's, it's just a, a mirror of what God's been doing in Galilee, in Israel excuse me, what Jesus has been doing in Galilee, in Israel, now he's doing even outside of Israel for the Gentiles. Okay, so that leads us to our third heading, verses 32 through 39. And I call this bread of life for the Gentiles. Right, that's the theme. Gentile faith, kingdom blessings for the Gentiles, and now bread of life for the Gentiles. Verse 32, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days, have nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven, a few small fish. And directing the crowds to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. 
And they took up seven baskets full, the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending the crowds away, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadon. His, when I, I know this is my second time reading it, but when I read it the first time, were any of you getting deja vu? <laughs> right? You're like, didn't we just have this happen? Right? Go, go ahead and flip back to Matthew. Now we're, we're done with Isaiah 35 for, for this morning. It was just in Matthew 14 that Jesus fed the 5,000, right? And now here's Matthew describing another miraculous feeding using a lot of the same language, right? Jesus having compassion, uh, the disciples, you know, saying, ah, right? And, and multiplying bread and, and, and fish and sitting down in groups and they all eating and were satisfied. And so people... Well, specifically, I guess you'd say maybe the liberal commentators are kind of like, oh, you know, Matthew, he's just, he's just repeating the same story for some reason. You know, he's just, they, they think it's just a redundancy. that He's just retelling the event that already happened. But no, this is a distinct event. And that should be pretty clear, right? Because there are differences. Yes, there are similarities. But there's differences from what happened in Matthew 14. Anybody see one? What's the difference? Go ahead. 4,000 to 5,000. Thank you. The most obvious one, right? Ah. And, and there's other differences, too, when you really start comparing the two. The number of loaves. Here, in, here we've got seven loaves. Back there in Matthew 14, we had five loaves. The number of leftovers. Here we're going to have seven baskets full. Back then we had 12 baskets full. These are distinct events. And again, I mean, the slam dunk on all that is in the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 16, in verse 9, Jesus is going to refer to the two feedings as two separate miracles. Matthew 16, 9. Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? So see, they're clearly two separate events. But Matthew wants us to see the connection. Yes, they are very similar in, the, in their outworking. And Matthew uses similar language because he's drawing a parallel between Jesus' Jewish... Oh, I think my, my S's are messed up there, right? Jesus' Jewish ministry in chapter 14 and really all the chapters, right, before that. And now his ministry to the Gentiles. He's wanting us to see the parallels. So you've got healings for both people. Both healings, we've seen tons of healings in, in Israel, haven't we? Galilee mostly. We've had some Gentiles healed, but it's been in those regions still of Israel. So you've got healings for, for Israel. Now you've got healings for the Gentiles. You've got feeding of the 5,000 for Israel, for Jews. Now you've got the same for Gentiles. And remember, what was that teaching us? What was the feeding teaching us back in chapter 14? That Jesus is the bread of life. That he is, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God and that he is the bread of life and that whoever would come to him by faith their soul will be satisfied they'll never be hungry they'll be saved 
And so this is showing that salvation has come for the Gentiles as well. And so this was, again, this was something the disciples and the Jews had to learn. And, I, and, and it, when you read this account in Matthew 15, you might be like, why are the disciples asking what, what's going to happen here, <laughs> right? Do they not remember what Jesus just did, the very same kind of miracle? How could they be like, oh, how are we going to feed all these people? And, and again, I don't know for sure. Maybe, they, maybe that's how slow their faith was, just like many of ours. Or maybe it's because in, they needed a complete paradigm shift. They couldn't imagine Jesus ministering in this way for Gentiles. Right? Because in their mind, they're thinking, Messiah, Israel, restore the kingdom to the Jews. And so they're, they're, they're going through a whole paradigm shift about what Jesus' ministry is. That God through Jesus is extending mercy to the Gentiles. And of course that's where Matthew's gospel is going to conclude, isn't it? In Matthew 28 with the risen Lord Jesus Christ commissioning his disciples. And he says, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. Okay, and that's being foreshadowed here, even now through, the, through Matthew, uh, chapter 15, the events of chapter 15. So I want us, one of my main goals today is that we understand the mission of Jesus as well. And so I've been alluding to it, but let me just state it very clearly. Yes, there is a priority in regard to Jesus' messianic ministry. He was sent to the Jews first. But the priority of Israel, the fact that Israel gets first dibs, so to speak, on the Messiah, does not mean that Gentiles are excluded. No, it's been God's plan all along for salvation to be extended to the Gentiles. Praise God, right? So we see this taught throughout, taught and um, lived out, so to speak, and as the apostles go out proclaiming the kingdom of God. Romans 1.16 Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Acts 13, 46. Of course, we're in the book of Acts, we're, we're actually looking at the apostles on their, on their missionary journeys. This is Paul and Barnabas. It says, They spoke out boldly, Acts 13, 46, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. And now since you thrust it aside, they're talking to Jews who've been rejecting the gospel. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so they quote the Old Testament as well. Right? They're understanding, yeah, this was God's plan all along. Praise God. Some Jews responded. Some Jews believed. The early church was made up of Jews, but it didn't just stay Jews. The gospel went, went forth into all the ends of the earth, and Gentiles were brought into the kingdom of God as well. And that, again, is Christ's commission to his disciples, to all of us in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. And that's what we saw in the scripture reading from 
Pastor Shannon in Ephesians 2. That's what that passage was talking about. Go back and read it again later. Verses 11 through 22 of Ephesians 2. It was saying God is no longer working exclusively with one nation, but rather God through Christ is saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God is creating for himself one new people, one new man made up of Jew and Gentile. Together, that's what God is doing. And so that's why the title of the message, Savior for All Nations. Jesus has come to save people from all nations. And so I hope that, for one thing, that just stirs up praise in you, right? That we think about the the power of Christ, the work of Christ, the, the love of God, the grace of God is big enough and powerful enough to save people from all nations, The work of Christ is powerful enough to rescue people from all kinds of idolatry, from all kinds of false religions, from all kinds of secular pursuits. The gospel is going forth and people are being saved from all kinds of backgrounds and placed in one new man, one body of Christ. And so that's the picture we see then in Revelation Revelation 7, verse 9, John sees a vision of the saints worshiping God in glory. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Don't you see the glory that that Christ gets in that? That That he is able and willing to save people from all nations. Imagine what it's going to be like, loved ones, to be in heaven and get to to be around that throne with people who look all different than us. But yet we were all saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so just think what a joy that's going to be to worship with them, to hear their testimonies of, of the false religions they were saved out of. And we can talk about the, the, the false religion or beliefs we were saved out of as well. So that was my main thrust that I wanted us to see is just, again, to be reminded of the the power of Christ, to be humbled by the fact that we're all sinners who need a Savior, to be reminded that the gospel levels the playing field, right? No matter what our background is, whether we're Jew, Gentile, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, we all by nature stand guilty before God. We're all separated from Him because of our sin. And the only way that anyone can be saved is through through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And so I close with just a couple of additional takeaways. In this account, um, specifically of the Canaanite woman, but, but really the text as a whole, I see a couple of pictures or reminders. And so I just wanted to share those with you. Number one is a picture of faith. We, we look at this Canaanite woman, and, and she is an example, a picture of faith. I mean, Jesus himself says, how great is your faith? When Jesus says that, it would do us all well to to pay attention, right? And to say, wow, he's just highlighted this woman. I wonder if there's something I could learn from her, right? She demonstrated two essential components 
to faith. Humility and belief, right? Humility and belief. She was desperate in her approach to Jesus. She saw her great need. She knew that Jesus was the only one who could meet it. She was humble. She didn't come with a sense of entitlement. She came empty-handed to Jesus, depending on throwing herself on his mercy. And that's how Jesus has taught us that any of us are saved, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. She was poor in spirit. She came empty-handed. She came spiritually bankrupt and saying, Jesus, I need you. Have mercy on me. I just need your crumbs. Have mercy. And that's how any of us are saved. We must see our desperate need. We must recognize that we have sinned and that we're, we stand guilty before a holy God. And we must, and this is so important, we must recognize there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Right? I mean, in the West, and Americans in particular, we, we have this sense of, of entitlement and also of, um, oh, what do you want to say, just pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, kind of independence, Right? I'll, I'll do it my way. I'll, I, can, I can work hard enough to earn my way. And that is exactly opposite of how a person is saved. And so we need to recognize that. We need to recognize our desperate need and that God alone can meet that need. And he has provided the solution through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the, the good news of the gospel is that everyone who turns from their sins... And like the woman, by faith, in Jesus Christ alone, right, recognizes who he is. You are Lord. You are Savior. I need you. Everyone who does that, the Bible says, will be saved. They will become a child of God. They'll be forgiven of all their sins. And though, and though we, we will still face death in this life, we know that we'll be promised eternal life. In glory with God. And so if you've never cried out to God in that way. If you think that you've somehow just kind of coasting into Christianity. Just kind of going to by osmosis become a Christian. Friend please desperately cry out to God today. Abandon all claims, all rights, all contributions, and say, God, I need you. I desperately need you. Christ, please come and save me, the sinner, and you'll be saved. So she's a picture of faith, and this whole account, this whole theme to me, secondly and finally, is a reminder of grace. Is a reminder of grace. And I was just so blessed this week just meditating on this passage and thinking about the glories of God's grace. We all used to be outside God's family and God's kingdom. We all were strangers and aliens because of our sin. We all were estranged to God and outside his loving family, right? So that's true of everyone by nature. But then Ephesians, again, back to that text that Pastor Shannon read, it reminds us, that, it reminds us 
as Gentiles that we were especially in a hopeless situation. That's what the text says. Remember that at that time you were without hope. And you were separated from God and separated from the promises. Not only were we sinners in need of a Savior like the rest of mankind, but as Gentiles, we were initially cut off from the outworking of God's saving plan. It was to the nation of Israel with whom God had given his covenants and his law. It was the nation of Israel who had been given the promises of a coming Messiah, of of God's king who would come and deliver them. But by God's amazing grace and through the sacrificial work of Christ, that grace, that, that salvation has been extended. Right Again, the language of Ephesians 2 says those barriers have been broken down. And now his, his love, his grace, his mercy is extending to people from all nations. Gentiles are no longer excluded from the covenant promises. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness. We've been placed in the eternal kingdom of God. We've been adopted into God's family. We've been given a share of Christ's inheritance. And so I hope that this just stirs your soul to praise God for his grace. I mean, God wasn't obligated to save anyone, right? But he he could have displayed his mercy and love by saving the Jewish people only. But no, he he wanted to show the glories of his grace and to save people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. And so we are blessed. Another passage you could go meditate on is Romans 9. Go read Romans 9. And there Paul, of course, he's, the context is he's grieving over the fact that the Jews don't believe. Right? Read 9 through 11. And he's saying, to Israel has been given the law, the prophets, the promises. But they, by and large, have reject, rejected Christ. But we, by God's grace, have been grafted in. And so that passage exhorts us to, to not become arrogant. Not to take it for granted, but it says rather fear. In other words, be in awe of God's grace. Are you in awe of God's grace this morning? That he saved you. And I know, you know, when we start talking about Gentiles and Jews, it's like, okay, well, we're all Gentiles here, right? I get it. But again, just, we we could get even, we could hone it down even more, right? Why did God save me? And he hasn't chosen yet to save my neighbors or other members of my family or other people that I work with. Be in awe of God's grace. Let us continually praise God for his grace. Let us be reminded of the greatness and power of God's grace so that we will praise him and tell others about Jesus, confident in the fact that Jesus is saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that God's grace is great, that he is mighty to save. All right, let's pray. Father, we do stand in awe of you. Lord, we read passages like Ephesians 2, and we realize just what a, what a desperate hopeless situation we were in, dead in our sins and, and, and cut off 
from your promises and knowledge of you, but yet you sought us by your grace. Lord, you came and gave us the new birth. You intersected our lives with the gospel. And again, 2,000 years ago, you, you raised your son from the dead and sent your spirit and declared that the gospel should go forth to all nations. And so we praise you for that. We praise you for the work of Christ, that he has come and, and bound the strong man and, and he's plundering his house and that he's no longer able to deceive the nations unchallenged. But that people from every nation are, by your enabling, turning to Christ. They're leaving lives of, of idolatry. They're leaving lives of false religion. Leaving lives of, of secular worldliness and they're following you and so lord we are so thankful to be included in that number and we praise you for your power and for your grace for your love and mercy that is so wide and so high help us to continue to grasp the magnitude of your love and grace that we will be thankful people and that we will be bold people who go forth and and Tell others about Jesus, knowing that you are a gracious God who delights to save. May you continue to draw people to yourself, even around us, Lord, that we can see the, the power of your work, that we can see more displays of, of, of your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing our praises to God for his grace. I love this song we're getting ready to sing. I mean, I love it anyways. It's probably one of my favorite songs, actually. But I thought how, how, um, how appropriate. Here's this Canaanite woman who, like us, is just saying, can I just have the crumbs? And this song is going to say, we are now seated at his table. Praise God.